We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go. Episode 344 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, June 27th. 2022 and we have a new Stanley Cup champion the Colorado Avalanche the Avs of Colorado 2-1 win at the Tampa Bay Lightning on Sunday night to win the Stanley Cup final four games to two first time in three seasons that the Lightning does not win the Stanley Cup final first time since 2001 that the Avs win the Stanley Cup they also won it in 1996 in their first season as the Avs. The Avs, as you probably know, used to be the Quebec Nordiques. The team's final season as the Nordiques was the 1994-95 season. And then the team in in its very first season as the Avs won the Stanley Cup. How do you think that Quebec felt about that? Uh, The Avs this year, like our Capitals, when they won the Stanley Cup in 2018, clinched all four playoff series on the road. Quite the achievement. Uh, We, of course, did not have Alex Ovechkin in this year's Stanley Cup final. Although Ovechkin did make headlines over the weekend. Did you see this? Alex Ovechkin, greatest player in Caps history, maybe the greatest athlete in Washington, D.C. sports history. He is, of course, from Russia. Uh, He signed a one-day contract with FC Dynamo Moscow to make his professional soccer debut in a friendly. Uh, So this was an exhibition game. And the game... (laughs) was against a team of bloggers, so it's not like Ovi was facing an actual real soccer team, but he scored a goal in the game. Uh, The video for this went viral. Alex Ovechkin in the 11th minute connected from the goal box from where else? The left side, as he, of course, has scored so many goals from left circles across the NHL over the years. I'm not sure if this goal counts in Ovi's quest to tie Wayne Gretzky for the most regular season goals in NHL history, but I feel like the goal should count for something. Hello and welcome to a Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, the only Washington, D.C. sports podcaster show for which there is a new episode each weekday out by the 5 a.m. hour and often much earlier than that. Hope that you had a nice weekend. I had a nice weekend. We finished Ozark over the weekend. Uh, tremendous. Just outstanding. Uh, I'd say that Ozark is one of the 10 best shows that I've ever watched. Maybe top five, maybe top three. I don't know. I'd have to think about it, but Ozark, really good. You know, it's so interesting to me, this trend in television 
over the last 20 plus years, beginning, I guess, with The Sopranos, of TV shows in which bad guys are the good guys. Bad guys are the main characters, but they end up like being the good guys because you end up rooting for them, you know, like Tony Soprano in The Sopranos, like Walter White in Breaking Bad, like Philip and Elizabeth Jennings in The Americans, uh, like the birds in Ozark. Uh, I'm not sure what this says about us as a society, but the shows are very good. We do do good television. That is true. Uh, well, hopefully this show will be very good. I can't promise you anything, but I'll try my best. Uh, coming up, part two of my conversation with Commander's Insider Ben Standig on the Commanders at their offseason break. We're in the midst of about a six-week break for the team between the end of offseason practices and training camp. Ben joined me on Friday's show, episode 343, to talk Commander's offense. Ben is joining me on this show to talk Commander's defense, including whether Commander's defensive players just might be fine with Jack Del Rio, uh, what the team's thinking at linebacker truly is, whether a contract extension for Cole Holcomb could be coming, whether Benjamin St. Juice really truly is who the team views as its number one nickel corner for this coming season and more. Uh, Next segment, I will react to a major reveal by former Washington quarterback Alex Smith on Saturday morning. He revealed that his daughter recently underwent an emergency craniotomy to remove a large and rare malignant brain tumor. Frightening stuff. It does appear as if she may just come out of this okay. Thank God. But uh, this reveal by Alex is just the latest awful development for a current slash recent Washington player slash coach. This is a trend that needs to stop, but this is a trend that is like refusing to stop. I'll get into that next segment. Uh, Also on the show, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles uh, as each team won its series over the weekend. Uh, The Nats won two or three games at the Texas Rangers, thanks in large part to, believe it or not, the Nats starting pitching uh, as well as the Nats' top three sluggers, at least in theory. Uh, Juan Soto, Josh Bell, and Nelson Cruz all producing to various extents. The O's won three or four games at the Chicago White Sox. What a series for the Orioles' bullpen, which has been so impressive this season. Also, good stuff from Adley Rutschman in the series. We have actual positive vibes regarding both the Nats and the O's from the weekend. We have not been able to say that often in recent years. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from Keith Horton. Al, did you address the picture that was posted from Can? If so, I missed it. Uh, thank you for the tweet, Keith. Uh, yes, the picture from Can, as in Can, France. So, as we know, or at least as we strongly suspect, Dan Snyder was on his super yacht in Cannes, France last week as the congressional hearing on the commander's workplace misconduct scandal took place on Wednesday. Posted on Facebook on Wednesday was a photo of multiple commander's executives on a yacht, presumably Dan's super yacht, in Cannes with the hashtag work with pretty people <laughs> as the tagline. Uh, The photo had two men and three women. They were posing near a table with drinks. Uh, Look, I am not against people having fun. I am not against people taking pictures. I'm not against a cocky, funny tagline like work with pretty people, okay? But this photo almost certainly was taken on Dan Snyder's super yacht in Cannes. I mean, what are the odds that while Dan was in Cannes, other commander's executives also just happened to be in Cannes? Like, come on. 
And I know for a fact that when Dan goes on these yacht trips to places like Cannes, he brings people. He doesn't just go by himself or uh, just go with Tanya. He brings people. So this seems to be Dan having invited these commander's executives to go to Cannes on the super yacht and have a jolly old time. And so the optics of this were, shall we say, less than ideal. I mean, this past Wednesday was a day on which we had not just the congressional hearing on the commander's workplace misconduct scandal, but also a number of new reveals in the scandal via all of those materials that Congress released last Wednesday morning prior to the hearing, including Dan having conducted a shadow investigation to influence the Beth Wilkinson investigation and having attempted to harass and intimidate witnesses in the investigation. And on this day, this very day, we we got a photo of Commander's executives almost certainly partying with Dan on his super yacht in Cannes, living the good life, right? Hashtag work with pretty people. And the photo just came off as totally tone deaf. I mean, do I think that these Commander's executives are all horrible people? No. Am I mad at them for enjoying themselves on Dan's super yacht in Cannes? Not really. No. Do I think that it was insensitive and foolish to post that photo last Wednesday, given everything going on that day with the commanders in the workplace misconduct scandal? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, this is public relations 101, man. All right. Uh, And again, I'm assuming that these people were partying with Dan in Cannes. We, of course, do not see Dan in the photo. You got to think, though, that Dan did not mind that photo being posted. Heck, maybe Dan encouraged the photo being posted. Heck, maybe Dan was behind the camera flipping the double bird to Representative Carolyn B. Maloney uh, while that photo was being posted. I would not be surprised. Uh, Email from Josh on the commander's Terry McLaurin contract situation, which I talked about on Friday's show, episode 343 in part one of my conversation with Ben Standing. Right, Josh, thanks for the awesome content every day. Just was thinking as you discussed Terry's contract situation, do we need to start thinking about a Terry contract dance theme, i.e. the Kirk Cousins cha-cha-cha? I hope not. Keep up the great work and thank you. Well, thank you for that, Josh. Uh, Boy, I sure hope (laughs) that the Terry McLaurin contract situation does not become like the Kirk Cousins contract situation, a multi-year, contentious, overly complicated contract dance that I deemed the cha-cha-cha. Yes, the cha-cha-cha. If the commanders do not sign Terry McLaurin to a contract extension this offseason or this coming season and end up franchise tagging him next offseason, then yes, we are headed down a Kirk-like path of cha-cha-cha because as we saw with Kirk and then with Brandon Sheriff, while franchise tags can serve as placeholders prior to striking long-term contracts, what tends to happen these days, at least with our team, is that franchise tags only increase leverages for players and increase the likelihoods of the players leaving via unrestricted free agency. We shall see. Gotta get an extension with Terry Dunn. Hopefully that will happen prior to the start of Commander's training camp on July 27th. Hopefully the Commanders will close a deal with Terry before the start of training camp, just as Kellen Hunt closes real estate deals in the Washington, D.C. area. Buying a home in the D.C. area is competitive and tricky, and so visit CloseItWithKel.com. That's CloseItWithKel, K-E-L-L.com. Book your call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs, and make sure that you tell Kel 
that Al Galdi sent you. Kellen Hunt has his finger on the pulse of developments all around D.C. He's a DMV native. He lives and breathes the culture of the area. Kellen has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to local neighborhoods, economical development, schools, market conditions, and all that makes the Washington, D.C. area unique. And Kellen Hunt closes deals. He is a closer. He wins. He is here for you to listen to what you want and then get you what you want. No matter your age, family situation, or financial situation, Kellen Hunt can help you. He's a real estate agent for real people, and Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yes, you, the buyer, get a piece of the action. Who doesn't want that in these economic times? Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing, and he wants to help. So visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs. And make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. Book your introductory call with Kellen Hunt at CloseItWithKell.com. If you're trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kell. Visit CloseItWithKell.com and tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. All right, before we get to part two of our conversation with Commanders Insider Ben Standing of The Athletic, I want to hit on something that we learned of on Saturday morning, and that something is more hardship for former Washington quarterback Alex Smith and his family. Alex Smith, in an Instagram post on Saturday morning, revealed that his youngest child, Sloan Smith, underwent an emergency craniotomy last month to remove a large and rare malignant brain tumor. Uh, Jarring news, obviously. Wrote Alex next to a photo of Sloan, quote, This is Sloan Kensington Smith, our baby, the youngest of three, and our only girl. She is sweet, selfless, intelligent, hilarious, witty, fun-loving, an artist, a singer, and a dancing machine. But most of all, she is an incredibly strong girl that has a ton of fight in her. The first picture was taken just a couple weeks before our lives changed. On May 10th, Sloan was rushed to the ER with stroke-like symptoms. She had an MRI, and the doctors quickly informed us she had a large brain tumor and needed an emergency craniotomy. The 10-hour procedure was the most excruciating time of our lives. A clock has never moved so slowly. The incredible neurosurgeons at Stanford Children's Health did a miraculous job and were able to remove 100% of the tumor. Sloan, in her true form, bounced back from brain surgery like a rock star. She didn't skip a beat. After weeks of waiting on pathology, we learned that Sloan's tumor is a very rare malignant tumor with very few documented cases without a clear roadmap for treatment. We are currently awaiting more tests and gathering as many opinions as we can from doctors across the country to decide the best path forward. We wish this were easy, clear-cut, and someone gave us a how-to guide. It's anything but that. All we know is what is most important, and that's Sloan. She has healed from surgery. Back to her bubbly self, singing and dancing, laughing, and feeling good. I know we don't post much about our kids, but we felt necessary to post this and say thank you. Thank you to our amazing medical team, family, friends, acquaintances, and even some strangers who have touched our lives in the last month and a half. We have struggled to keep up on calls, texts, communication, and trying to keep loved ones updated. This has been by far the most challenging time we have ever been through. We know it's not over and we have a journey ahead of us, but without all of you, we could not have gotten this far. We are sorry if we seem withdrawn. It's because we are. 
We have been inundated with doctor's appointments, scans, labs, and trying our best to navigate through this. Most importantly, we're healing together as a family. Love the Smiths. End quote. So, wow. Alex Smith's youngest child, emergency craniotomy last month to remove a large and rare malignant brain tumor. Uh, she thankfully has healed from the surgery. Uh, path forward undetermined, so she's doing better. She's not out of the woods yet, but it seems like there is some real optimism here. I cannot imagine what Sloan Smith undergoing an emergency craniotomy, emergency brain surgery, must have been like for Alex Smith and his family. So certainly all the best to Alex and his family. But I got to tell you, I saw this Instagram post from Alex Smith. And one of my reactions was, here we are with yet another situation involving a current Washington player or a recent Washington player resulting in near death or actual death for someone. This trend has become undeniable. And it is a terrible, awful trend that needs to stop. But think about all of the situations over the last few years now involving current slash former Redskins slash Washington football team slash Commanders players that have resulted in near death or actual death for someone. You start with what happened to Alex Smith himself. November 18th, 2018, Alex in the 23-21 skins lost to the Houston Texans at FedEx Field, suffering the broken right fibula, and broken right tibia, ultimately resulting in 17 surgeries on his right leg due to infection and sepsis. And as we now know, Alex nearly died and nearly had to have his right leg amputated. Uh, we had Ron Rivera's battle with cancer. And obviously, Ron is not a current or former Washington player, but his battle with cancer certainly can be mentioned in this conversation. August 20th, 2020. I'll never forget the date because that's the night on which my daughter was born. In fact, I learned I, I learned of Ron having cancer while checking my phone while my wife was in labor. Uh, yes, I checked my phone for Washington football news while my wife was in labor. I'm not proud of that, but it is true. Uh, but the then Washington football team on the night of August 20th, 2020, put out a statement confirming that Ron Rivera had cancer, uh, what was squamous cell carcinoma located in a lymph node. Uh, how about what happened with Washington late last season, last December 23rd? Then Washington safety DeShazer Everett, the driver in a fatal one-car crash in Loudoun County, Virginia, that killed the vehicle's passenger, 29-year-old Olivia Peters. And DeShazer on February 8th was charged with involuntary manslaughter in the death of Peters. The Loudoun County Sheriff's Department's investigation determined that DeShazer was traveling, quote, over twice the posted 45-mile-per-hour speed limit just prior to the crash. End quote. And then just days after the death of Olivia Peters, we on December 28th had the brother of Washington Edge defender Montez Sweat, Anthony Sweat, being killed in a shooting in Henrico County, Virginia. Uh, Anthony Sweat was just 27 years old. And then this past April 9th, we had the Dwayne Haskins tragedy, right? Former Washington quarterback Dwayne Haskins killed due to being struck by a dump truck while he was walking on a South Florida highway. I mean, that is some run of tragedy slash near tragedy. And I bring all of these things up not to depress you, okay? I'm not trying to make everyone sad here. I'm just trying to highlight what has become impossible to ignore. All of these life-threatening, if not death-resulting 
situations involving current slash recent Washington players. And I know that every team in sports has its share of situations like these, but does it not feel like we have had an inordinate number of these situations with our football team, the team that we now call the Commanders, over the last, say, four years? And note, I'm not even counting all of the other stuff with the team, you know, the scandals, the controversies, the disappointment on the field, etc. Forget about all of that other stuff. I just can't get over how many of these, again, life-threatening, if not death-resulting situations involving current-slash-recent Washington players that we've had over these last few years. It really does feel sometimes like there's a perpetual dark cloud over this team and everyone in the team's orbit. I mean, Dwayne Haskins is dead, okay? Like, he's freaking dead. Think about that. The guy who two years ago at this time was Washington starting quarterback, now is dead. I mean, I'm not trying to be overly emotional here, but like, how crazy is that? Dwayne Haskins, two years ago, Washington's QB1, two years later, dead. And I apologize for such a heavy segment here, okay? I'm really trying to avoid bringing the show down, but enough is enough with this stuff. Now, every one of these situations, of course, is its own entity. Uh, One situation has nothing to do with another situation, but enough is enough. Enough of these life-threatening, if not death-resulting situations involving current-slash-former Washington players. Please let what has happened to Sloan Smith be the end of this trend. I mean, I don't want these situations happening to anyone, but I really can't get over how many of these situations that we now have had with current-slash-recent Redskins-slash-Washington football team-slash-Commanders players over the last few years. I mean, this really is remarkable and uh, not in a good way. All the best to the Smiths. Uh, Well, we certainly hope that neither you nor anyone in your life is dealing with tragedy, but if you or someone who you care about has been harmed due to the negligence of someone else, uh, know that the law firm of Paulson and Nace is there for you. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases, offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611 and make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace can help your family make difficult decisions. Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. Chris Nace is a past president of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. You're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace take care of your family.
Hey, shout out to all of you who have given this podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Much appreciated. Also, thank you to all of you who have written reviews of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. These things help us out a lot. If you haven't rated or reviewed the podcast, please consider doing so. If you're on Apple Podcasts, you can just uh, tap the five stars for the five-star rating, and you can write a simple one or two-sentence review saying that you like the podcast. Again, much appreciated. Time now for part two of our conversation with Commanders Insider Ben Standing of The Athletic on the Commanders at their offseason break. The Commanders on June 16th concluded their three-day mandatory minicamp. They're now in the midst of this break until the start of training camp on July 27th. And so now's a good time to assess where we are at with the team's offense and defense, especially as we all could use some actual commander's football talk with all that is going on with the workplace misconduct scandal and Congress. Uh, Ben is the host of his own podcast, the Standing Room Only Podcast. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Standing. Uh, We on Friday show, episode 343, conducted part one of our conversation, which focused on the commander's offense, we right now will focus on the commander's defense. So, Ben, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hope you had a nice weekend. Let's get right to it. So, the commander's defense, the Jack Del Rio dust-up. I want to spin that forward. A number of prominent commander's defensive players during the week of the mandatory minicamp got asked about Jack, and not a single player expressed having a problem with Jack. In fact, the players supported Jack. Uh, talking about Jonathan Allen and Deron Payne and Cameron Curl and Montez Sweat. So as someone who covers the team, do you think that it's safe to say that what happened with Jack did not create the problem with commanders, defensive players that many people expected? Or do you think that there may be more tension than we're being led to believe? Yeah, you know, it's it's a really interesting question, right? On the one hand, there's always something in the air here. And I'm sure just like, you know, for you and for me and for a lot of other people, we kind of get used to it, right? And therefore, because there's always something, when it, when there's therefore a new something, maybe it doesn't get the focus and attention it would if there was not all the other somethings. Now, in this case in particular, part of the reason why there was some notion, uh, thought that there would be some aftermath is that he's making the Del Rio's making some kind of a comparison. He, he he was identifying the riot aspect of the summer of 2020, but obviously the basis of that was uh, social justice protests and things that affect the black community. And therefore, I think people were wondering, would that, you know, would that be the issue? My, my thing, though, is it's not like Del Rio has been that shy about his political views the whole time. The only reason this thing bubbled up the way that it did was, one, he made that comparison, which got some a little bit of attention from some other people outside the market. And then, two, the use of the term dust-up to describe January 6th led to more people going, whoa, 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 what's happening? But in terms of his like beliefs, he's pretty open about these things. So if the players had an issue, they didn't have to wait until this moment in time to be offended or just perhaps speak out. And I haven't heard, as you said, we haven't heard about any of this. I have heard players being frustrated by the just constant torrent of negative headlines around the team, but not specifically to Del Rio. And in talking to the players that we spoke to on the record and talking to some people off the record, at least around the team or, you know, connected to player things, I haven't heard of, of anything. Um, I, I'll say that I think that reflects how they view Del Rio, who is given, I think, more responsibility than just sort of a standard defensive coordinator. You know, Rivera is more of a, 
CEO type. And I think Del Rio is probably the one who really is connecting with the players on a daily basis. And whether that gave him goodwill or these guys are just apolitical and just don't just don't worry about it. It doesn't seem like there's there's tension. You just hit on something, the Ron Rivera-Jack Del Rio relationship. That has always been so interesting to me because Jack's one of the few guys on Ron's coaching staff who Ron had not worked with prior to Ron's time as Washington head coach. Uh, Jack, at his press conferences, has made these snippy comments about how, while Ron may be willing to reveal and discuss certain things, Jack isn't. Uh, It has been said that Ron has leaned on Jack to help run the team. Now we have Ron having fined Jack $100,000 for the dust-up comments, and then Ron giving two different explanations for the fine. What's your sense on the relationship between Ron and Jack? It's a good question, man. Um, I, I would love to know a little bit more about that. So I wasn't there when, when Rivera was asked questions about the things that Del Rio had said on Twitter. And which he, I'm not saying he blew off, but he didn't bring up any, he didn't come to, he didn't respond with any real enthusiasm, certainly nothing compared to the statement that came out later. Now, you can say, again, that the statement had a lot to do with, with the use of the term dust-up, but the comparison of the of the two events has already was already occurred, and Rivera didn't do much about it. To me, the subsequent action, the fine, and the statement, I'm not saying that the dust-up comment alone isn't worth it to a degree, you know, without trying to get overly political here. But at the same time, I kind of looked at it as when Del Rio makes that comment, he's he is. You could make a case he's stumming his nose at authority. He because from a distraction perspective, what are you doing, right? I mean, I you know, all of us work for companies, and you can't just go say whatever you want because it potentially reflects negatively on your company and your bosses may be like, eh. Wait, what, what, what are we doing here? And then he's got a really high-profile job. So I kind of feel like Rivera maybe felt some individual heat and maybe even some pride kicking in about, hey, you know, what's going on here? He, he mentioned that the reason he was being fined was a distraction, not for the actual content of the of the words, even though he said he shouldn't think certain things. So I, I don't necessarily know that there's massive tension between the guys, but at the end of the day, Del Rio was speaking out when – I don't know what Rivera had ever said to him before, but clearly – you got to know that you can't just say whatever you want about these things. Um, you know, so I don't know. Sorry, he said, I don't know if there's tension, but at the same point, I, clearly Del Rio is a guy who's going to do his own thing. And maybe maybe this was sort of to a degree a breaking point for Rivera in terms of like, you know, how far you could kind of let him go. We're talking Commander's defense with Commander's insider Ben Standig of The Athletic. In terms of what you saw from the Commander's defense during OTA practices and the mandatory minicamp, the team rarely, if ever, went with three linebackers on the field, at least three traditional linebackers on the field. The team constantly went with two or fewer traditional linebackers on the field. We know that the team this offseason has done next to nothing at linebacker. Still could do something at linebacker, but we're now in late June. Uh, do you anticipate the commander signing a veteran linebacker for, if nothing else, uh, linebacker depth? Or is the team just not that worried about linebacker? And <laughs> all of this linebacker talk that we've had this offseason is going to prove to have been overrated. Yeah, um, I, I, I've, I've stocked up on uh, Advil over the uh, offseason just for this one specific topic because it doesn't really make much sense to me. Um, I. Uh, purely from a depth perspective, right? Okay, f- I mean, like again, I get it. The, the, the they used 
primarily two linebackers last year. But, of course, that's a bit false, right? What did we call Landon Collins for the last 10 weeks? We called him, or however many weeks he played, we called him a linebacker. The He just didn't want to be called that, so we didn't call him that. But, effectively, they were using three linebackers. They were using three linebackers when John Bostick was playing. And once he got hurt, they just didn't have anybody else, which is the same issue they're having right now. So I get that they go sub package most of the time, but the idea that you wouldn't have another linebacker, what if Cole Holcomb gets hurt? I mean, okay, David Mayo stepping in. David Mayo didn't play. I mean, he has played in the league and started, but he didn't even play last year until injuries happened, even after John Bostick got hurt. I mean, he didn't play, I should say, until like the COVID outbreak happened. He didn't really play when John Bostick got hurt. Same for Khalid Hudson, who barely played even with the COVID outbreak. So the idea that you're going to say just from a depth point of view that these guys, that they have enough, I, I just don't buy it. And I, Rivera's spin is, hey, we wanted to look at some guys. We wanted to, we got undrafted free agents here. We want to take a look at also. Okay. But I, I mean, I, I would assume that they you know, knocked on the door of a few veteran linebackers said, we're here, if you want to take the veteran minimum right now, sign up, and those guys are like, eh, I can skip OTAs and minicamp for that. And they'll, I would have imagined they circle back with some people going forward here. You know, if I'm doing a 53-player projection right now, am I even getting to a fifth linebacker? Am I just picking some guy just to say, well, I guess they have to have five? Or is there somebody who's actually justified in any level? So I, I have to guess that they're going to sign another one. But I've been wrong on this bet for months now. So uh, <laughs> don't, don't don't listen to me because clearly I don't get what they're kind of doing here. It is funny. The commanders have plenty of salary cap space. This notion that the team doesn't have cap space is false. The team does have cap space. If the team was going to sign a linebacker of consequence this offseason, you would think that that would have happened by now. Uh, While we're talking linebackers, a lot of talk about the contract situations of Terry McLaurin and Deron Payne. Not nearly as much talk about the contract situation of Cole Holcomb, but he, like Terry and Deron, is entering a contract season. Are you anticipating a contract extension for Cole Holcomb sometime this summer? Yeah, good question. Um, I I guess I don't know if I'm anticipating it because, I'll be honest, I haven't really inquired that much because <laughs> been the other guys ahead of him and if they're you know if, if they're sort of putting Deron Payne behind Terry McLaurin then you know Cole Holcomb is even further back but I think it's a reasonable thought right I mean he is you know until Jamin Davis shows he's capable of you know playing every every down then um Holcomb is the one guy that they have he's obviously been a pretty solid player you know for the, after claiming they were going to look for a Mike linebacker they decided no we're good with we're good with him, so you know that that, that would seem to be an indication of, of their belief in him. And you know, certainly, guy seems like always seems like he's a hard worker. Uh, all, all these types of things. So you know, I, I feel like Cole Holcomb is is in a pretty good spot. So it wouldn't stun me if they did. Maybe he's the guy. Like you know how like every year now, this year Charles Leno got the end of the season, but not you know not just before the end of the season extension. Chase Rea did the, the year before. Maybe Holcomb is the guy for that spot this time, but. Uh, you know, I would imagine they would like to keep him around somehow. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you would think that you probably could get a contract extension with Cole Holcomb done in season, much as the Commanders did with Chase Rulier two years ago and Charles Leno Jr. 
last season. So, you know, it's funny we're talking Cole Holcomb because Ron Rivera pretty clearly changed his mind on Cole Holcomb. Initially, this offseason, it was Cole Holcomb is best utilized as an outside linebacker in a 4-3 alignment. Now the narrative is, no, Cole Holcomb can be our middle linebacker or Mike linebacker. Maybe Ron will change his mind on what I'm about to bring up here, but I think the most surprising development for the commander's defense this offseason is that Benjamin St. Juice has emerged as the team's likely number one nickel corner for this coming season. St. Juice barely played any nickel corner in college, and given his size, the belief has always been that this guy was best suited to be an outside corner. Now, if he can be a good nickel corner, that is outstanding, but uh, do you buy that the team is going to go with St. Juice as its primary slot corner for this coming season? Well, yes and no. I mean, yes, based on how often they were using him there, it seems pretty clear he was the lead for that job. And, you know, it, last year he was the fifth defensive back a lot before the concussions kicked in, but they were moving Kendall Fuller more inside. And then I think, you know, based on last season, it seemed to me and I think to others that Fuller was just ultimately more effective on the outside. So I think they, they want to keep him there, which is why it was a big, it's been a question of like, well, who's going to play, you know, inside, you don't think of a six foot three corner as typically that guy, but St. Juice, you know, looked to me and I think to others I talked to that he was, you know, showing some pretty solid quickness and, and mobility in there despite his size. And his size can give you a, a good, a different look if teams are going with, say, a, a tight end or a bigger receiver inside, like Drake London, for example. Obviously, they got picked by Atlanta, but he's like a six five receiver with a lot of experience in the slot. So a guy like St. Juice would be, would be potentially a good matchup. There, But I also think, and this is where I think a lot of this comes down to, it's sort of by default. Like, what what else are they are they doing? Uh, you know, I mean, Danny Johnson, I think, held up nicely last year in the slot. But he's, I don't think you're planning to have Danny Johnson be that guy. They drafted Percy Butler with the idea of him being in this Buffalo nickel spot. Okay, but, you know, it's, you know, it's just gonna, it looks like a little bit of a slow build up here. For for him, and even still, are you definitively you know going in with the rookie? The, the, you know, there Derek Forrest barely played as last year. Uh, what, wh- where else are they going? I don't think you know. I mean, so I, it almost feels like it's saying juice by default more than it is. He's wowing everybody. But again, I do think he showed some good things, and as we saw last year, they were you know down to use him a lot. He 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 played way more than Cam Curl in Week One last year. Um, so. They like him, but this is in a different location, and that's what makes it a little more interesting. All right, Ben. Good stuff. I always enjoy our conversations. Uh, Thanks so much for the two-part extravaganza on the state of the commanders at their offseason break. Talk to you soon, man. Anything for you, uh, Mr. Galdi. Appreciate it. All right, Commander's Insider Ben Standig of The Athletic. Up next, I'm talking Nationals. A series victory for the Nats as they won two or three games at the Texas Rangers over the weekend. And thanks in large part to the starting pitching. All of a sudden, somehow, someway, the Nats starting pitching has caught fire. I'll get to that and much more after this. Well, eating healthy, it's something that we would all like to do, but it's not something that's always easy, enjoyable, and affordable to do. This is where Factor comes in. Factor is a meal delivery plan that provides you with healthy, delicious, and affordable food, and you right now can save $120 
on Factor Meals just by being a listener of this podcast. Whether you're trying to get or stay lean or you're trying to put on muscle, Factor gets the job done and saves you hours per week in that you don't have to worry about food shopping, cooking, or doing dishes. Factor provides you with prepared meals that are fresh, never frozen. Uh, We're talking food from animals that are grass-fed and pasture-raised, food that is antibiotic, hormone, and preservative-free. Factor meals are put together by registered dietitians and expert chefs who work hand-in-hand to create meals with nutritious ingredients. The meals are delicious. You'll have a hard time believing that they're actually good for you. And Factor offers 30 meals per week. You can choose from a variety of new meals every week, so you'll never get bored. Uh, Like many of you, I try to eat healthy. I go to the gym. I eat Factor meals. They're terrific. And you can't beat the convenience. Each Factor meal arrives pre-prepared and ready to eat in two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. You can't beat this. So here's a special offer. Visit Go. Dot factor75.com slash Galdi120 and use the code Galdi120 to get $120 off. Yeah, you heard that right. $120 off. Who couldn't use an extra $120 right now with gas prices and inflation? That's go.factor75.com slash Galdi120 and use the code Galdi120 to get $120 off. Give Factor a try. Eat well. Save yourself time and money. Visit go.factor75.com slash Galdi120 and use the code Galdi 120 to get $120 off. You got to try Factor because fitness starts with food. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S. based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Well, the Nationals may not be a good team this season, but they have developed a penchant for winning weekend series. Uh, The Nats over the weekend won a weekend series for the fourth time over the last five weekends. Uh, So, so, hey, there is at least that. Uh, The Nats won two or three games at the Texas Rangers. Friday night, a 2-1 win. Saturday, a 3-2 loss. Sunday afternoon, a 6-4 win, although that game became way too close for comfort. Still, Uh, The Nats won the game and won the series, and so Nats manager Davey Martinez is proud of the boys. I'm proud of the boys. 
That's right, Davey. Uh, the Nats in this 2022 regular season now are 27 and 48. Uh, last in the National League East, second worst record in the NL. And the Nats still have the worst run differential in the majors at minus 111. But the Nats did win the series over the weekend, and there was quite a bit to like. Let's start with the Nats starting pitching. It was good in all three games in the series. And the Nats starting pitching now has been good in six of the teams. Last seven games, uh, we'll work backwards here. Jackson Tatro in game three, good for a second consecutive start. Tatro in the 6-4 win at the Rangers on Sunday afternoon. One run in six innings. Uh, this off what he did in a 9-3 win over the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park the previous Sunday afternoon, June 19th. Three runs, all of which were unearned in seven innings. Tatro in that game became just the third Nats pitcher in the 2022 regular season to complete at least seven innings in a game. This really is something what the Nats have gotten from Jackson Tatro over his last two starts. Uh, he, on Sunday afternoon at the Rangers, gave up just four hits, two doubles, and two singles. He issued two walks. He recorded four strikeouts. He threw 99 pitches, 57 strikes versus 42 balls. He certainly wasn't dominant, but he was effective. Uh, Tatro tossed six scoreless innings, uh, then was charged with a run in the bottom of the seventh, during which he gave up a leadoff single to Adolis Garcia, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12, and then gave up a double to Cole Calhoun on a one-two pitch. Uh, so the Nats on June 14th brought up Jackson Tatro, selected his contract from AAA Rochester. He had not been like killing it for Rochester or anything like that. Tatro this season over 12 starts for Rochester, ERA of 419. Uh, he, in his Major League regular season debut, did struggle. 10-4 loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park on June 14th. Seven runs in four innings. He was never some like top prospect or anything like that. The Nats took Tatro in the seventh round of the 2017 MLB draft out of State College of Florida. This season is his age 26 season. Nobody really has seen this coming from Jackson Tatro, and I'll grant you, this is a small sample size. He's made three major league regular season starts, the last two of which have been good, but the last two have been quite good for Tatro, and when you're not expecting much and you have someone pitching for you at the major league level basically out of necessity because you don't really have anybody else, that you get anything in the way of quality is surprisingly good, and the Nats have gotten quality from Jackson Tatro over his last two starts now. Uh, here was Davey Martinez during his postgame session with reporters on Sunday on Jackson Tatro. The key is, you know, he goes out there, he, he keeps his composure, and he throws, uh, you know, strikes. Um, he fell a little bit behind it on hitters, but he's able to throw that strike when he needed to, which 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 was good. So, but um, man, like I said, this kid comes up here and, and he's very much under control. Um, he's got a good idea what he wants to do, and he works hard every day. Uh, you know, so you know we'll, we'll get him back out there in five days, but he's done well. Given what that situation was, it was kind of a fill-in start at first. Um, safe to say he's going to continue to be here for a while based on you know they earn the right to stay here for a while yes absolutely i mean he's going to stay he's going to get an opportunity to pitch uh every five days and then we'll, we'll see we'll see where we go um but like i said uh, right now uh, he's done well um but look we'll go back and look at some things talk to him tomorrow about some different things that we saw and then uh, make a couple adjustments and then go from there pushing him into the seventh against the tough part of their order was that kind of a test yeah some degree? i want to see how he, he would react um you know, the good thing is he went out there, and he, like I said, he, you know, those guys can hit, you know, and he, he, but he, he went through strikes. A couple guys got on, and I thought that was good enough for him. I mean, he was up in 100 pitches by then, so, um, but he gave us six strong innings, which was great.
Yeah, so Jackson Tatro was good for the Nats in Game 3 of the series win at the Rangers. Josiah Gray was good for the Nats in Game 2 of the series win at the Rangers. Uh, Gray and the Nats' lone loss in the series, the 3-2 loss at the Rangers on Saturday. Terrific. Two runs in seven innings, nine strikeouts versus one walk. Uh, He gave up just four hits, a homer, and three singles. He threw 94 pitches, 61 strikes, versus 33 balls, and he did this by not throwing his fastball much at all, so that to me was maybe as encouraging as anything in a game in which uh, Gray didn't feel like he had his fastball working at least as much as you normally would want. Gray still was able to rack up nine strikeouts. I really liked how Gray ended his outing, scoreless bottom of the seventh with three swinging strikeouts, including back-to-back swinging strikeouts of the Rangers' numbers five and six batters, Mitch Garver and Nathaniel Lowe for the first two outs. Those were the two guys who got to Gray in the Rangers' two-run second. Gray in the bottom of the second allowed two runs, issued a one-out five-pitch walk of Mitch Garver, gave up a one-out two-run homer to Nathaniel Lowe on a bomb to dead center field for a 2-0 Rangers lead. The homer went a projected 432 feet per stat cast. But Josiah Gray ultimately very good on Saturday. Here was David Martinez during his post-game session with reporters on Saturday evening on Josiah Gray. Clearly, the, the the breaking balls were working for him again. Um, they were good ones. Uh, you know, he threw as fast as we needed to, but I mean, his his uh, out pitches were breaking balls today. So, um, and he was in the zone when he when he's in the zone with those breaking balls, um, it's really good. So, I mean, he 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 did exactly what he needed to do today, and like I said, he he pitched outstanding. Yeah, Josiah Gray on Saturday, really nice job. Uh, Gray in the Nats' 9-4 loss to the Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park on May 24th got roughed up. Uh, Seven runs in three innings. He, over his last five starts now, has been very good. He responded well to that shellacking that he took at the hands of the mighty Dodgers at Nationals Park on May 24th. And you look at Josiah Gray now this season, 14 starts in the 2022 regular season, ERA of 382, strikeouts per nine innings of 9.8. I mean, that's not bad. And then Paolo Espino was an ad starting pitcher in game one of the series at the Rangers. And he once again was good. My guy, Paolo, you know, he, he doesn't look the part, but he sure is acting the part. Paolo in the 2-1 win at the Rangers on Friday night, one run, in five and a third innings. He gave up six hits, a homer, and five singles. He had three strikeouts versus one walk. He threw 89 pitches, 58 strikes versus 31 balls. So Paolo Espino now in this 2022 regular season in 40 and two-thirds innings over 23 games, including three starts, has an ERA of 221. (laughs) That, That is terrific. You know, Davey Martinez, for the longest time this season, relegated Paolo to basically only mop-up duty. But Paolo now is part of the Nats rotation, like Jackson Tatro at a necessity. And Paolo is making Davey look bad for having relegated Paolo to not much more than just mop-up duty. Again, Paolo Espino's ERA for the 2022 regular season is 221. And the Paolo Espino story really is something. And we did talk about this last season because Paolo was surprisingly good for the most part last season. But here we are now, Paolo Espino. This is his age 35 season. He initially signed with the Nats in April 2014 when they signed him to a minor league contract. He signed another minor league contract with the Nats in January 2019 and then a third minor league contract with the Nats in November 2020. The Cleveland Indians took Paolo in the 10th round of the 2006 MLB draft. He has like no business having the success that he's having this season. And yet he is having 
that success. So very good weekend for the Nats starting pitching and a good weekend for the Nats top three sluggers, Juan Soto, Josh Bell, and Nelson Cruz. Now, not all three guys were good to the same degree, but each guy ended up having a good series. Uh, Juan Soto, he was an ad starting right fielder and number two batter at all three games in the series. He over games one and two had two doubles, but he also had more fails with runners in scoring position. Soto on Friday night, one for four with a double, but he in the top of the third with runners on first and second, no outs, and the game scoreless grounded into a killer one six three double play. He did then, in an ad's one run eighth, have a leadoff opposite field double off the left field warning track. Uh, Soto on Saturday, one for four with a double. He did ground into another double play, top of the first grounded into a 5-6-3 double play, but he, in an ad's two-run six, had a leadoff double off the base of the center field wall. And then Soto on Sunday afternoon got on base five times. He went one for one with a single and four walks. Uh, basically, Juan Soto and like a handful of other people in Major League Baseball are capable of having a line like that. One for one and four walks. Soto in the Nats three-run first drew a one-out six-pitch walk. Soto in the Nats three-run second had a two-out opposite field single on a very weekly hit ball to left field. Soto in the top of the fourth drew a two-out four-pitch walk. Soto in the top of the sixth drew a two-out five-pitch walk. Soto in the top of the ninth drew a five-pitch walk. Juan Soto is having a very strange season. He, in this 2022 regular season, has a batting average of just 218. Yeah, Soto is hitting a mere 218 this season, and his slugging percentage is just 436, and he has been really bad with runners in scoring position. OPS is just 501, but he does have an on-base percentage of 372. That's good, and he is number one in the majors by miles in walks, 61 walks on the season. So if someone asks you, what kind of a season is Juan Soto having? The answer is it's complicated. Now, the season overall is not the kind of Juan Soto season that we know that he's capable of having, but it's not as simple as, well, he's just having a really bad season. Eh, Yes and no. Yes and no. By Juan Soto standards, this season has not been what it should be. But by most other players' standards, yeah, this still is actually a pretty good season. Uh, Josh Bell, he had a great series, really impressive series for Josh Bell. You know, Bell is from Texas. The saying in Texas, of course, is that everything is bigger in Texas. Well, uh, Josh Bell came up big in Texas. He was an ad starting first baseman and number three batter in all three games in the series. Bell on Friday night, three for four with a triple, a double, and an RBI single. Bell on Saturday, one for three with a single and a walk. Bell on Sunday afternoon, three for five with an RBI double and two singles. And take a listen to all of the hits that Bell had in plate appearances in which he had two strikes on him in this series. Bell on Friday night in an ad's one run sixth, a one out double to center field on an 0-2 pitch. Bell on Saturday, top of the eighth, a leadoff single to left field on a 1-2 pitch. Bell on Sunday afternoon in the Nats, three-run first, a one-out single up the middle, despite having been down in the count at one point, one-two. Bell in the Nats, three-run second, a two-out RBI double to right field on an 0-2 pitch for a 4-0 Nats lead. Bell in the top of the fourth, a two-out opposite field single on a 1-2 pitch through the left side of the infield. Josh Bell was so good in this series. And it's not just what he did, it's how he did what he did. Again, all of those hits and plate appearances in which he had two strikes on him, and in many instances uh, was down 0-2 or 1-2, and yet still came through 
with the hit. Uh, the most deserving all-star on the Nats is Josh Bell. He, in this 2022 regular season now, has an OPS of 882. He has had his lulls, but overall, Josh Bell has been very good for the Nats so far this season. And then the former Ranger, Nelson Cruz, had a good series. Now, it's interesting with Cruz because I don't know about you, but when I think about Nelson Cruz, I do think about him as a Texas Ranger. And Cruz did play for the Rangers for eight seasons, 2006 through 2013. He, over those eight regular seasons, had an OPS plus of 114. That's good, but that's not the level of excellence that he ascended to after his time with the Rangers. The truth is that Nelson Cruz's best work came with the Orioles, Seattle Mariners, and Minnesota Twins from 2014 through being traded from the Twins to the Tampa Bay Rays last July. I just find that to be interesting. You think Cruz, at least I do, you think Texas Rangers, but actually his best work came after his time with the Rangers. Anyway, Cruz was the Nats starting DH, a number four batter at all three games in the series. Cruz on Friday night, one for four with a double and two strikeouts. Uh, he, in the top of the fourth, had a leadoff double to left field, but he got thrown out at home by a mile for the second out of the inning on a K-Bert Ruiz one-out single into right center field. This was a very annoying moment if you're a Nats fan. The Nats have had way too many guys thrown out at home plates this season. Nelson Cruz on Friday night, him getting thrown out at home, that marked the 11th time in this 2022 regular season that a Nats runner was thrown out at home plate. And the Heat really has picked up on the Nats' new third base coach for this season, Gary DeSarcina. More on him momentarily. Cruz on Saturday, one for three with a two-run homer and a walk. Uh, Cruz in the top of the first drew a two-out five-pitch walk. Cruz in the Nats, two-run six, a one-out two-run homer to left field on a one-two pitch to tie the game at two. Uh, the homer went and projected 398 feet for StatCast. It was great to see that from Nelson Cruz. We also, though, had controversy involving Cruz in this game. So Cruz in the top of the eighth with the game tied at two, grounded into a 6-4-3 double play for the first two outs. But this happened one pitch after what should have been a hit for Cruz was ruled a foul ball. Uh, the ball clearly went off the glove of the Rangers' third baseman, Josh H. Smith, and into foul territory, but the ball was ruled foul. The Nats got jobbed on this play. They were told that the play wasn't reviewable. We then, though, on Sunday afternoon found out in a piece by Rangers insider Evan Grant of the Dallas Morning News that the play was, in fact, reviewable. The Nats didn't know that at the time. The umpiring crew apparently didn't know that at the time. Uh, that was a bad job by MOB in the Nats getting screwed on what should have been a hit for Nelson Cruz and instead ended up being a foul ball in a plate appearance that resulted in a double play. And then Cruz on Sunday afternoon, two for five with a two-run single and an RBI single. Uh, Cruz in the Nats Three-run first, a one-out first pitch, opposite field RBI single through the right side of the infield to score Juan Soto for a one nothing Nats lead as Soto scored on an aggressive send by Nats third base coach Gary D. Sarcina. That, I thought, was a bit of a risky send by old Gary D., but the send did end up working out, so I guess you got to give him credit for that. Uh, and then Cruz in the Nats three-run second, a two-out full count opposite field, two-run single to the right field corner for a 6 nothing. Nats lead. That was an impressive hit for Cruz. That hit concluded a 10-pitch plate appearance, although Cruz then got thrown out at second base for the third out in trying to stretch the single into a double. Uh, this was another instance of a Nats base runner being thrown out on the base path. So there was a lot to take in with the weekend for Nelson Cruz. Here, though, is the bottom line. MLB trade deadline is on August 2nd. Both Josh Bell and Nelson Cruz 
are in the midst of contract seasons. The Nats, of course, are a rebuilding team. These two guys, Bell and Cruz, Cruz and Bell, are the Nats' two most obvious and viable trade chips. And make no mistake, they should eventually be traded prior to that MLB trade deadline on August 2nd. There is an argument to be made for extending Bell, but unless a contract extension is signed prior to the trade deadline, the Nats can't take the chance of not trading Bell in the hope of re-signing him this coming offseason. And remember, you can always trade Bell and then re-sign Bell this coming offseason if you're that intent on having Bell back. But Josh Bell and Nelson Cruz, those are the Nats' top two trade chips this year, at least as things stand right now. And good to see each guy in a good, if not great, place right now. Uh, Also, having a good series at the Rangers for the Nats was Luis Garcia. Uh, He continues to hit since being recalled from AAA Rochester on June 1st. Garcia was the Nats' starting shortstop in every game in the series. Garcia on Friday night as the Nats' number five batter, one for four with an RBI double. He and the Nats' one run six had a two-out RBI ground rule double off the right center field warning track for a one nothing Nats lead. Uh, Garcia on Saturday as the Nats' number five batter did go 0 for 4, but Garcia on Sunday afternoon as the Nats' number seven batter, two for four with a triple and a single, and each hit came on a 1-2 pitch. Uh, Garcia in the top of the third, a two-out opposite field single to left field on a 1-2 pitch to beat the shift. Garcia in the top of the fifth, a two-out triple to the right center field gap on a 1-2 pitch. Luis Garcia now in this 2022 regular season, over 97 major league plate appearances, batting average at 319, on base percentage at 330, slugging percentage of 468. He is hitting at the major league level. And the defense, while not great at shortstop, does seem to be improving. So that's encouraging. And consider this. So the Nats this past Tuesday afternoon reinstated shortstop Alcides Escobar from the 10-day injured list. He had been on that since June 1st due to a right hamstring strain. Alcides Escobar has not played in a single game since being reinstated from the 10-day IL. That's how much of a stranglehold Luis Garcia now has on the Nats' starting shortstop job. Alcides Escobar, who had been the Nats' every game shortstop, now hasn't played in a single game since being reinstated from the 10-day IL last Tuesday afternoon. Uh, Speaking of not playing, uh, Victor Robles. Uh, He started just one of the three games in this series. Robles on Friday night was the Nats' starting center fielder and number nine batter, 0 for 2 with a strikeout. He, in the top of the third, drew a leadoff hit by pitch. Uh, This has been a third consecutive disappointing season for Victor Robles, and it's very telling right now that he's not playing a ton, okay? He's certainly not starting a ton. He he might get into games late in games as a defensive replacement, as a pinch hitter, pinch base runner, etc., but uh, Victor Robles, you could very much make the case right now, is the Nats' fourth outfielder with Juan Soto, Lane Thomas, and Yadiel Hernandez all ahead of Victor. Um, His his bat just is not worthy of having in the lineup on a game-in, game-out basis at this point. And then we had the Nats' bullpen, and boy, was that an adventure in this series. Uh, Friday night, the bullpen was good. Three Nats relievers in the 2-1 win at the Rangers combined for three and two-thirds scoreless innings. Coral Edwards Jr. tossed one and two-thirds scoreless innings. Kyle Finnegan scoreless bottom of the eighth, two strikeouts. Tanner Rainey scoreless bottom of the ninth despite issuing a one-out walk and then giving up a one-out single. Rainey did not look great, but he did ultimately get the job done. Then came the 3-2 loss at the Rangers on Saturday. Carl Edwards Jr., good again. Scoreless bottom of the eighth. Edwards now has an ERA for the Nats in the 2022 regular season at the major league level of 252. The production that the Nats have gotten from Carl Edwards Jr. really is something. The Nats in February signed Edwards to a minor league contract 
It was on May 10th that the Nats selected Edwards' contract from AAA Rochester. He has only been up at the major league level for a little more than a month. He's a veteran. He's been around. But he has become, in the period of a month, basically, the Nats' number three reliever behind Tanner Rainey and Kyle Finnegan. And you could argue right now that Edwards is the most trustworthy reliever out of those three guys. Because Kyle Finnegan, in the game on Saturday, bottom of the ninth, faced one batter. And the result, a leadoff walk-off homer. Uh, Adolis Garcia, who is known in Texas as the great Bombino, uh, he hit a bomb off Kyle Finnegan to center field for a 3-2 Nats walk-off loss. And this happened despite Finnegan having had Garcia down in the count at one point, one, two. Uh, but this was a bomb. The homer went a projected 449 feet per stat cast. Look, I know that you're going to get got if you're a reliever over the course of a season. Finnegan got got by Adolis Garcia there on Saturday. Again, leadoff, walk-off homer to break a two-all tie in the bottom of the ninth inning. And then came the 6-4 win at the Rangers on Sunday afternoon. Erasmo Ramirez, bottom of the seventh, face four batters, got three outs, okay. Steve Ciszek tossed a scoreless bottom of the eighth, okay. Then came Francisco Perez, and he ended up being a complete disaster in what ended up being a three-run Rangers ninth. The Nats' lead went from 6-1 to 6-4. Now, this was Francisco Perez's first appearance in a game since June 17th. Uh, understand, Sunday was June 26th. It had been a while since Francisco Perez had pitched in a game, and the rust showed. Uh, he allowed three runs, did not record a single out. He gave up a first pitch leadoff double to Cole Calhoun, then gave up an RBI single to Nathaniel Lowe, then gave up a two-run homer to Jonah Heim on a blast to left field to cut the Nats' lead to 6-4 despite Heim having been down to the count at one point. One, two. Davey Martinez, who obviously did not want to use Tanner Rainey, ended up using Tanner Rainey to finish out the game. And Rainey did get the job done. Bottom of the ninth, face four batters got the rounds. But if you're Davey in that spot, up 6-1 going into the ninth, you're not trying to use one of your A relievers, right? You're trying to rest Tanner Rainey, rest Kyle Finnegan, and just have someone like a Francisco Perez close out the game. And Perez couldn't get a single out and instead ended up giving up three runs. Nothing is easy for the Nats this season, but they did win the series. Uh, Next up for the Nats, a seven-game homestand, starting with a three-game series against the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park. Game one, Monday night at 7.05, Eric Fetty will be the Nats starting pitcher. Game two, Tuesday night at 7.05, Patrick Corbin will be the Nats starting pitcher. And game three, Wednesday afternoon at 1.05, Paolo Espino will be the Nats starting pitcher, looking to improve on his 2.21 ERA. Well, if you are an Orioles fan, you by now know that things are different this season. The team, after being terrible for years, now is finally, truly showing signs of being good again. Uh, The O's aren't there yet, and who knows, maybe they end up not getting there, but every indication right now is that this is a young team on the rise. Uh, Now, the O's did lose on Sunday afternoon. 4-3 was the final at the Chicago White Sox, but that was the Orioles' only loss in a four-game series at the White Sox, who, granted, are not a good team this season. Still, the O's won three or four games at the White Sox. Thursday night, a 4 nothing win. Friday night, a 4-1 win. Saturday, a 6-2 win. Sunday afternoon, the 4-3 loss. The O's in this 2022 regular season now are 34-40. and They are last in the American League East, yes, but the O's since their 14 and 24 start are 20 
and 16. Not bad. Not bad at all. Uh, This was O's manager Brandon Hyde on Sunday during his pregame session with reporters on whether he is eyeing the O's getting to 500 for the season. Our team is playing competitively. I I like the confidence in in how we're playing. Um, We are are in one game in a mode. Um, You know, so it's it's. I don't want to look too far ahead and try to try to reach a an end number right now. But I just want to continue to play the way we're playing. And if, if we do that, then good things will happen. Brandon, really throughout your whole tenure, you've talked about how, despite the circumstances, how how happy you've been with the clubhouse. Yeah. Is there any difference in there now that things are are ticking up a little bit? Whenever you're playing better, or you're in your winning games. The it's an easy. Uh, it's easy to, to have a good clubhouse atmosphere. You know, um, we already had a good one, uh, and I've said it a lot of times. I mean, for, for three years, I think you would walk into our clubhouse and not know that our team was struggling the way it had so much. Uh, I think that's a testament to our coaches and, and people in there for keeping the, the best attitude possible and trying to be as consistent as possible. Um, but now that we've... You know, we're playing better this year, and, and so that improves. And we have a couple, we have some really good veteran guys that, that has been extremely helpful in that, that, that um, are all about winning and uh, not settling and uh, we continue to encourage others. And, and so I really like the vibe in our clubhouse. So good stuff from Brandon Hyde there. And following the Orioles 6-2 win at the White Sox on Saturday, I thought really good stuff from outfielder slash first baseman Trey Mancini. Mancini said something that to me really stood out. Quote, we come to the park every day and expect to win. And that's not a feeling we've had here in a long time. End quote. Uh, Boy, was that a telling quote from Trey Mancini. The biggest bright spot for the O's in this series at the White Sox was the Orioles' bullpen, especially what the bullpen did in each of the first three games, which were the Orioles' three wins in the series. Uh, Thursday night, three Orioles relievers combined for three and a third scoreless innings with six strikeouts. Friday night, the O's went with a bullpen game, and the results were outstanding. Five Orioles relievers combined to allow one run in nine innings on eight strikeouts versus just one hit and two walks. Uh, The former Nationals pitcher, Austin Voth, started the game, allowed one run in three innings with three strikeouts. Joey Crable tossed two and a third perfect innings with three strikeouts. Brian Baker tossed one and a third perfect innings. CNL Perez tossed one and a third perfect innings. Jorge Lopez tossed a perfect bottom of the ninth. I mean, Lopez has been just superb so far this season. Jorge Lopez now in this 2022 regular season has an ERA of 0.75. But how about the Orioles bullpen in that bullpen game on Friday night? Again, five relievers combining to allow one run in nine innings with eight strikeouts. And the final four relievers in the game, Joey Crable, Brian Baker, CNL Perez, and Jorge Lopez, those guys combined for six perfect innings. I mean, <laughs> that is that is outstanding. And then Saturday, three Orioles relievers combined to allow one run in four innings. Uh, Nick Vespi, a scoreless bottom of the seventh with two strikeouts to lower his Major League ERA for the 2022 regular season to 0.79 over 11 and a third innings. The O's in the 2022 regular season now have a relief pitching ERA 
of 3.06. Just tremendous. And keep in mind, this is with the O's having totaled 308 and two-thirds relief innings, third most in the majors. So the bullpen is being leaned on a ton, and yet the bullpen, ERA, is really good. And keep in mind, too, that all of these relief pitching numbers do not include the multiple instances in which the Orioles have started relievers in games this season, like, say, Austin Voth in the game at the White Sox on Friday night. Uh, the Orioles' offense in this series was up and down, but there are a few guys worth highlighting. Adley Rutschman had a good series. Uh, he was the Orioles' starting catcher and number six batter in games one, two, and four. He in the series went four for 11 with a homer, three doubles, and a walk. Uh, Rutschman on Thursday night, two for four with a two-run homer and an RBI double. Rutschman on Friday night, one for four with a double. Rutschman on Sunday afternoon, one for three with a double and a walk. He has been a lot better lately off a really bad start to his major league career. Rutschman in this month of June is slugging 493. Uh, Cedric Mullins has not had a very good season. We've talked about that, but he did have a pretty good series. He was the Orioles starting center fielder and number one batter in all four games in the series. He in the series went seven for 18 with seven singles and went one for one on stolen bases. And Mullins on Sunday afternoon made the defensive play of the series. Bottom of the fifth, a spectacular diving and backhanded catch in right center field of a full count liner by Andrew Vaughn for the second out. You know, the O's entering games on Sunday were number four in the majors in defensive runs saved at plus 34. The Orioles defense has been really good this season, especially their outfield defense with Cedric Mullins and Austin Hayes. Speaking of Hayes, he had some big hits in this series. Hayes on Friday night as the Orioles starting right fielder and number four batter, one for four with an RBI double. He and the Orioles one run eighth had a one out RBI double off the left center field wall for a 4-1 Orioles lead. Hayes on Saturday as the Orioles starting right fielder and number three batter, two for five with a three run double and a single. Hayes and the Orioles four run seventh, a two out bases loaded at three run double off the center field warning track for a 6-1 Orioles lead. And Hayes in the top of the ninth had a two-out single. Uh, Austin Hayes now in this 2022 regular season OPS of 817. Uh, the Orioles starting pitching in this series overall was pretty good. Uh, Thursday night, Dean Kramer was good. Five and two-thirds scoreless innings, though he did put a lot of guys on base. Friday night, we had the great bullpen game. Saturday, we had the return of Spencer Watkins. Uh, the O's on Saturday morning recalled Watkins from AAA Norfolk, and he was the Orioles starting pitcher on Saturday. Watkins was on the 15-day injured list from May 23rd to June 8th with a right elbow contusion, but the O's on June 8th optioned him to Norfolk. Well, now he's back, and Watkins in the 6-2 win at the White Sox on Saturday. One run, which was unearned in five innings. Pretty good. Uh, gave up five hits, a double, and four singles. He had four strikeouts versus one walk through 78 pitches, 49 strikes versus 29 balls. So Watkins now ERA of 514 over nine major league starts in the 2022 regular season. And then Jordan Lyles was the Orioles starting pitcher in game four of the series. He gave the O's length, but he also gave up four runs. Uh, Lyles in the 4-3 loss at the White Sox on Sunday afternoon, four runs in seven innings, gave up six hits, a homer, a double, and four singles, had four strikeouts versus one walk. He did throw a lot of strikes, and he threw a lot of pitches, 111 pitches, 75 strikes versus just 36 balls. Uh, the homer that Lyles gave up came in the White Sox's two-run second. Lyles gave up a two-run homer to Gavin Sheets on a 1-2 pitch. Uh, Jordan Lyles now has an ERA of 494 over 15 starts 
in the 2022 regular season. Uh, also regarding Orioles starting pitching, Kyle Bradish has been placed on the 15-day injured list. Uh, the O's on Friday afternoon placed Bradish on the 15-day IL retroactive to June 21st with right shoulder inflammation. And perhaps this explains, hopefully this explains, why Bradish has been so bad over his last seven starts. The O's on April 29th recalled Bradish from AAA Norfolk. He was good in two of his first three major league regular season starts, but he has been awful over his last seven starts. Take a listen to these lines. Four runs in four and a third innings, five runs in five and a third innings, six runs in one and two thirds innings, two runs in four and two thirds innings, two runs in four and two thirds innings, five runs in four and a third innings, six runs in four and a third innings. Really rough stretch for Kyle Bradish over the last month. Uh, Next up for the O's, a six-game road trip, beginning with a three-game series at the Seattle Mariners. Game one, Monday night at 10-10. Tyler Wells will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. Game two, Tuesday night at 10-10. Dean Kramer will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And game three, Wednesday afternoon at 4-10. Austin Voth will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 345, will feature plenty on the commanders. We'll talk Nationals and Orioles as well. The Nats on Monday night at 7.05. We'll get a three-game series against the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park. The O's on Monday night at 10.10. We'll begin a three-game series at the Seattle Mariners. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.